Welcome everybody to this uh, episode of Learning the Tropes. I'm Erin. I'm Clayton. I'm your romance novel veteran. And I'm the virgin. And we're your hosts. We have a very special episode today, guys. We are interviewing um, a wonderful first-time romance author, Erin LaRosa. Erin uh, LaRosa has written many highly engaging tweets as a social media manager on her way to writing romance. She's also published two humorous nonfiction books, Women's Skills and The Big Red-Headed Book. Uh, she lives in Los Angeles with her husband and three daughters, one human, two feline. Her debut romance novel, For Butter or Worse, is a joyously tropey and fun novel about two hosts of a celebrated cooking show who must pretend to date in order to save their TV careers and the restaurants they both love. Uh, featuring fan favorite tropes such as enemies to lovers and fake dating. For Butter or Worse is out July 26, but is obviously available for pre-order now. We're big fans of pre-ordering. It just shows up, guys, if you just order it now. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Erin. I'm so excited to be here as a, as I've said, uh, longtime listener, first time caller. So thank you for having me. <laughs> awesome. So let's start by talking about for better or worse. Like, how did this book come to you? How was the writing process for you? Tell us a little bit about it. So for better or worse came about because I think like a lot of people during the especially start of the pandemic, I was just watching a ton of cooking shows like Top Chef, Great British Bake Off, Chef's Table, just kind of like drooling over other people making food that I didn't really know how to make myself. Um, And while I was watching these shows, I kept noticing that the women in the shows were kind of very nurturing uh, usually, and the men were a little bit more uh, aggressive and assertive. And so I started thinking about that. And when I was researching this book, I found that um, only 7% of kitchens in America are run by women. Like the food industry is still very male dominated. And there were a lot of stories about sexism. So I wanted to write a female chef who is sort of like a Gordon Ramsay type of character and uh, a male restaurateur who's more of a cinnamon roll hero. So I wanted to kind of reverse those roles and think about that. But yeah, uh, the the initial impetus was just like watching a ton of cooking shows and being like, I wonder what would happen if two of these hosts had to fake date in order to save their careers. Like, how would that look? How, how, how would that be funny? Uh, how could we dive into the enemies to lovers trope, that kind of thing. So yeah, that was that. Awesome. And so to kind of bring it back, you know, we were talking a little bit before about a strict Catholic upbringing and parents didn't talk about sex. So I'd love to hear kind of your journey to romance, sort of like, when did you start reading? Mm -hmm. What were the first ones you really connected with? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I think my first introduction to romance and even more specifically, like maybe erotica was actually fan fiction online. So I am like a child of the internet and I used to write fan fiction about Hanson and NSYNC. Those were my (laughs) my boy bands that I loved. Um, And so I had two separate websites where I would like write fan fiction about them. And this was when I was like maybe 10 years old, starting around 10. Um, And I would also search out like X-rated fan fiction. And this was, you know, like 
in the 90s. So like the internet was super early days. But the other thing I think because I did come from a Catholic upbringing, like I didn't really get into porn maybe in a normal way that the people do with like videos or images. I really was drawn toward and, and thought it was safer to like read erotica that I found online. And so I would mm -hmm. like search for like dirty stories, like dirty romance stories. And the thing was for me, like we only had one family computer in my house growing up. It was like in, in a specific room that was called the computer room. And so I would have to wait for my parents to leave the house. And then like when their car was gone, I would like go on the internet, find a story and I would print it out because I was like, <laughs> you know, I don't want, I want to be able to like bring it to my room, like furiously masturbate and like have this story uh, and hide it. And I would like hide it in one drawer specifically, but it was like such a terrible idea because all the time it would be like, you know, my parents would come home early and because the printers were ancient and the internet was ancient, it would just be like slow chugging to get this story that whatever I found printed out and some of them were super long so I would have to like unplug the printer try to stop the print job before they came up to say it was very uh dangerous times in the 90s for me finding uh romance so I feel like my my actual intro to romance was through fan fiction erotica and then when I I remember this like contemporary romance book that I discovered was actually Bridget Jones Diary which came out when I was in high school um, and I feel like that was actually my first intro to like a romance romance book because my, I didn't have that situation that a lot of people do where it was like, oh, I would sneak copies from my mom or like my grandma had a few copies of like, you know, Beverly Jenkins or Lisa Claypass or whatever. Um, like I didn't have that experience. And so I feel like Bridget Jones was my first, first book version of that. And I got very into contemporary romance after that um and just kind of like consumed them um but yeah for sure the internet for me was was my intro <laughs> Bridget Jones is a great first one too and I remember loving that book and that yeah your hero Leo in For Butter or Worse is also a big Bridget Jones fan so that's really sweet that that sort of like, I know you folded it in there I tied it back I know um I feel like so many of the men I love are that kind of like, especially if you watch the movie that like Colin Firth interpretation of uh, Mark Darcy and I almost said Mr. Darcy, but in a way. <laughs> um, and so I feel like I go back to that man in my mind a lot when I'm writing. And I feel like Leo does have a little bit of that in the, the enemies to lovers ness. And also Bridget Jones is total classic enemies to lovers between Bridget and Mark as well. So yeah. I was going to ask if there's any evidence of your old uh, fan fiction anywhere. Are uh, those sites still available or, cause I know a lot of people started off either reading them or writing them. Yeah, I really wish that my old Hanson and NSYNC stories were still online because I would I would just love that. Um, but I've I've looked for them and I can't find them. They were on an interface that I don't think exists anymore called Angel Fire for oh. children of the '90s who might remind remember that who blogged. Of course. Um, but the, I think the only like artifact I have was that in college. So I studied writing at Emerson that was like my major and for one of the like 
very fancy like literary critique classes that I took, which for those who who haven't been through these, it's like you're in a group, maybe other people, you write a short story, you get critiques from the people in the group. It's a terrible thing. And I, I don't think anyone should take one of these classes because it's not helpful. <laughs> um, but I decided to write a um, like short, basically erotica story for this class um, because there was someone in the class who I had a really big crush on. And I was like, like I, I know what what I will do. I will will write this like erotic Rome class, read it, and um, we'll have a happily ever after. That is not what happened, obviously. Um, I remember I had to send it to my teacher early because everyone would send it to the teacher first. And the teacher like pulled me aside after class and she was like, are you sure you want to show this? Like you don't have anything else that you want to bring to the group. And I I was like, no, we're doing it. And so I remember, I mean, this was like, I guess the start of my romance career, really. But what happened was that, so my my fellow students got the paper uh, emailed to them. Then a lot of students like printed it out and showed other people in my college this story and oh. had like readings of it. <laughs> That's <laughs> so like, again, it was like a very like just literary program and here I was writing like basically erotic fiction about one of my classmates and then during the actual critique I could tell that I had really made a mistake because the the person who I had a crush on was just like slinking down in their chair and was sort of like why is this happening to me it was uh, um it was it was clearly like, about that specific moment, but I person. still have yeah very clear very clearly and, and um I still have that and that uh, signs that I would become a romance author uh but yeah I totally humiliated myself <laughs> so that was that was um maybe the only thing left for me so then how long have you two been married at this point um so we are <laughs> celebrating 10 years in June oh wow end of June <laughs> So, um, so yeah that guy actually did reach out to me once on Facebook and he like years later and he was like was that story about me and I was like I, I think I actually didn't respond because I was so embarrassed and, and couldn't couldn't tell him it was about him but he knew yeah so that that's an interesting that leads to an interesting thing which we were talking about before we start recording which is that you use your actual name when you wrote this book Mm -hmm. and that is a rarity i think probably anybody who you know reads romance or knows anything about romance knows that a lot of people use pen names either a variation of their name or a completely fabricated name but you chose very boldly i might add to use your actual name now what went into that thought process there it didn't even occur use a pen name like that never crossed my mind but I remember my my agents who I've asked do you plan to use your own name um I think for me proud of I love the romance John want to shy away from revealing who I really am you know people can look me up and find me on Instagram or TikTok or whatever and they're they're seeing me they're seeing my family they're seeing my life um 
I didn't feel that kind of like need to separate my personal life and my work life from my writing life. I think maybe if I had like a profession, like a teacher or something like teaching kindergarten, it would be a little different. But um, (laughs) my day jobs have been like being a social media manager. And I worked at BuzzFeed, Netflix and Amazon as my day jobs. And I remember telling people like, I really want to write romance. And no one really gave me a hard time about that. You know, people seemed kind of excited and intrigued by it. So I guess I just didn't have that kind of um, worry about other people knowing that I'm a romance writer. And, you know, I think for me too, like I just grew up with super conservative family members and in a really conservative community and maybe that should have given me pause because like I have a lot of very religious family members who I think are going to order this book and (laughs) read a bunch of sex scenes that I wrote and they probably like will reach out to me about it but um I think also because I had that kind of really conservative upbringing now I kind of over index the other way where like we never talked about sex growing up and now it's like all I want to talk about. And it, I don't know, it's like that effect of like, you don't talk about, about it for so long. So now like, it's all I, all I think about, all I talk about is like (laughs) sex and writing books that feature sex. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and I don't think that's the thing is it is, we are getting into a, a period now where I think the stigma towards romance in general is waning and a lot of it Mm -hmm. has to do with hollywood figuring out that oh wait these ips these book series or these novels can be used to make money right i mean that's the thing is romance wasn't lucrative for the writers to, to a certain level but now when hollywood gets involved i mean you saw a similar thing happen in comic books like when I was a kid in the 90s, you you hid comic books. Like, you didn't say you liked comic books. Comic books were either, like, if you were really into it then and read them, that was one thing that you hid. Now, if you were like, oh, I'm going to invest in comic books, that was a thing for a while because comic books were like Beanie Babies for a second there. <laughs> oh, but right, like collectible like, items. I forgot about that. Yeah, you were going to send yourself through college with these comic books. But <laughs> if you actually read and enjoyed them, you were stigmatized. And I think once, mm-hmm. you know, Hollywood latched onto it, they're the most popular movies around, that stigma goes away. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily yeah. positive uh, because it, when anything is taken and it just becomes dollar signs, it's it's not great. But I think the byproduct of that could be that people are less ashamed of reading, writing, or participating in that sort of like uh, romance landia that we all love. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I actually just saw that um, Tessa Bailey's It Happened One Summer is getting made into a movie. That was like the latest thing I saw, which is like a really filthy book that I absolutely (laughs) loved. Um, And I was so happy to see that it's being turned into a movie. But it is interesting, like a lot of my writer friends who, again, like I went to the pretentious college with and, you know, have have careers or are trying to have careers in literary fiction, like some of them have had, I've had these funny conversations where they'll, they'll say like, 
Well, you know, romance really sells well. Like they know that romance is a, a very high selling genre. And some of them have have like kind of offhandedly been like, maybe I'll try writing a romance book, um, which, you know, is much easier said than done, especially yeah. if you don't know the genre. But um, it, it's an interesting change because I feel like like years ago when I would bring up writing romance books, like maybe 10 years ago and, and how I always wanted to write one, like people would really give me a hard time about it. Um, and would ask me like if I was going to write sex scenes or, you know, things like, like very like kind of um, passive aggressive comments about the genre. But I do feel like it's such a badge of honor and especially the tropes that come with romance. Like, if you're an enemies to lovers fan, like I, I have a shirt upstairs that says like, you had me at enemies to lovers. Like I buy <laughs> swag that deals with my favorite tropes. Like it feels like such a fun fandom and genre to be part of. And so I would love if more people got on board, but it is also a thing of like, when you meet another real true romance fan, there's something really magical about being able to talk to them about the books you love and how how you came to it growing up with it. It would be cool though, like I have a two-year-old daughter and I've thought about like, is she gonna be totally humiliated like if she reads my books growing up? Or is there a way that I can kind of like introduce her to the genre slowly? Like maybe I'll leave around like tattered paperbacks of some of my favorites and just encourage yes. her to steal them. I don't know. <laughs> so I think no matter what, everybody has a phase of being horribly embarrassed by their parent. And so you're right. giving her like a pretty open reason as to what that reason will be. Uh -huh. So it's fine. And it's something she'll work through. I, yeah, I like that idea. Therapy is helpful. Yeah, exactly. Early. Um, you've written a few times and I've really loved learning more about it. And I'd love to chat with you about kind of that difficult thing of working like a, I always call it like a J-O-B, like job, job. <laughs> and then you have like your creative pursuits and when to decide yeah. how, how to integrate creative pursuits into being able to afford a house and meals and yeah. clothes and enemies to lover swag and how to also kind of honor that, that thing that you want to do. And so I'd love to hear, yeah, you just chat a little bit about sort of like your process through that. Yeah. So I have written about this a lot because, um, like twice now I have quit my full-time day job to pursue writing romance books. And, uh, also when I was a full-time writer, editor at BuzzFeed, I did write my first two nonfiction books during that time. However, BuzzFeed also gave us what was called at the time book leave. So we were allowed to kind of like take a little time off uh, to work on creative pursuits. So I'll say like, you know, I, again, came from like a really conservative family everyone in my family is in the medical field. Like no one is creative in my family. So mm -hmm. I was just sort of, uh, you know, I never felt like being creative could be a full-time job. And so I started from that. However, I had a teacher in school who told me like, you know, you're a really good writer. Like you should think about doing that as a career. And so that really stuck in the back of my head. But what I did was like, I tried to fight that as much as I could, because I honestly like, 
didn't have any examples of success in that field um, in my personal life. Like I didn't know anyone who was a full-time writer. I'm from like a small town in Florida. Like people just had J-O-Bs, like you said. Mm -hmm. So like writing was not one of those jobs. Um, And when I went to college and got a job at Random House right after college, I did that because my parents were like, how are you going to make money? Like, how are you going to make money as a writer? That was like a constant question. And I didn't have an answer, but I thought like, well, I'll work adjacent to books. So I got a job at a publisher, worked there for a year to the day and um, ended up leaving because while I was there and I was helping other authors with their books, I really felt like I was in the wrong place. And I was sort of like, you know, I, I love meeting authors. I love getting to work on their books. However, like, I think this is not feeding something inside of me that that is I need to write. And so I went back home, I moved back in with my parents and I worked on uh, college applications for grad school for writing again. And I was sort of like, okay, I'm gonna just try to like study writing even more, be immersed in that culture even more and try to figure it out. So eventually I moved to Los Angeles where I went to school at USC Um, for grad school. And during that time, in order to make money, I had um, a scholarship with USC that allowed me to uh, teach there while writing, but it wasn't enough money for me to live off of. So in order for me to like, make money, I turned back to the internet, which obviously, as we know, from my past, very good (laughs) at blogging. (laughs) Um, So I started like finding jobs on Craigslist that that were like, you know, we need a writer for this random website. And so I started kind of like getting paid to write that way. And I eventually worked my way up and, you know, had jobs like at Funny or Die and E! Online, um, writing for them online. And so that kind of writing adjacent thing worked for a time where I was Mm -hmm. able to write online and, and kind of fulfill that little bit of creative itch. And I would always work on books in the background. Um, But I kept like, no matter what job I went to, whether it was at E, then my next thing was BuzzFeed, then Netflix, then Amazon. And there was just always this thing in the back of my head that was telling me like, you're not supposed to be here. Like you need to figure out what you want to do. And the thing that I kept going back to was writing books. And so I would write books. Like I would wake up, I did this thing for years where I woke up every morning at 5 a.m., no joke, to write for like an hour or two every morning before work, because that was the only time I had. And so, you know, that's how I finished my two nonfiction books while I was at BuzzFeed mainly. Um, And then when I was at Netflix, I think I just hit a breaking point because that job that I had there was really demanding. And so I didn't have those extra hours in the day. And even though I was doing this incredibly fun job there, like my job was to help our movies, Netflix movies, like create social content. So I would be working with celebrities. I'd be on set every day, like helping to capture social content with them. Like I should have been so excited to go Mm -hmm. to work every single day and I hated it. And so I would talk to my husband about it and I would say like, you know, something's wrong if, if I don't even like this job, which is just like almost a make-believe pretend job that they're paying me to do, um, if I still feel really empty and hollow. So we basically looked at our finances and figured out like 
how much money do we need to save for me to be unemployed for a year? If I take a year off and work on a book and just see where it goes, like, what does that look like? And so while I was working at Netflix, like we were squirreling away money. And then when it was like my birthday, it was like January 7th, my birthday rolled around. And I was like, (laughs) okay, my birthday present to myself is going to be to quit this job that I don't like. So I literally, I put in notice on my birthday, like left Netflix. And I told them the truth. I was like, look, um, you know, this is a time in my life where I don't have any children. I don't have like a lot of responsibilities and I'm going to just take this risk and take a year off and focus on figuring out what will make me happy. So I did that. And I like wrote, I wrote the first draft of for better or worse within like three or four months after leaving the job. Um, I sent it to an editor friend and my editor friend was like, this is garbage. You're going to have to start (laughs) all over again. Oh gosh. Hated it. And, you know, like, I think that's pretty normal. Like I've had, I have so many drafts of like books that I've written that will never see the light of day. And this one, you know, like poured out of me, but just like hit the mark and it was a totally different story than what I ended up with in the, in the book I have now. Um, but after that happened, it was like four months. I felt, I felt like pretty dejected. I was like, Oh no, I like took this risk. I wrote a whole book. The book is garbage. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Um, and just kind of started like thinking about how to fix it. And in that time I got offered an, like another friend of mine was like, look, we really need help at Amazon prime video. Can you come help us with our social? And so I decided to go back to a day job because I was sort of like feeling like I had failed. And so I went back to work at Amazon again, the same thing happened where I had that little voice in my head being like, you're not supposed to be here. This is not right. This is not working. You're unhappy. And so then the pandemic hit and I had a newborn during that time, like March 10th of 2020, my daughter was born and LA shut down that week. So it was like my pandemic baby at a job (laughs) I hated and basically what I did was I went, I went, I started from scratch with for butter or worse. And it would be like when she napped or really late at night. Um, I think, I think like, I would not recommend this to anyone. I would, I would not recommend like having a newborn and starting a draft of a book. But um, I think I was so creatively uh, hungry that it was kind of the only thing that kept me sane during the pandemic was this thought of like, I'm going to finish a draft of this book again. And when I finished the draft, I said to my husband, I was like, look, I'm just going to send it to agents and see if anyone finds any kind of promise in it. And if not, like, fine, I won't write another book. Like that's the first telling me it's not working. And so luckily when I sent my book out, I did get a few bites. I definitely got rejections, but I got bites from agents who were like, you know, we see something here. Could you make the following changes or whatever? And I, and I landed with my agent and we rewrote it. And as soon as I sold it, I sold it in a two book deal to Harlequin. So this is part of a series, but that again, the universe I felt like was telling me or sending me a sign of like, Hey, you can, you can be successful. One book from you, they want two. Um, 
And so at that point, then I quit my job at Amazon. <laughs> so my second time quitting a, a job for this book. Um, and I just decided to kind of like go all in on it. So now I'm, I my job at December. So it's been like half a year and I'm just kind of committed again to really trying to make this work as a career. But I think for me, like to, to answer your question more pointedly, like, you know, deciding to quit your day job to pursue something creative, I think is, is a really important and it, thing to do and it's a huge risk and it makes sense for some people it doesn't make sense for everyone and there's a huge chance that I'll have to go back to a day job or get a part-time job or something like that um and I'm super aware of it but I do I'm more like on the team of taking risks and just seeing how it goes um and I think something important to know is like there will always be a job like there will always be another job you can do, you can find. Um, and what I will say is like, when I interviewed at Amazon, they thought it was really cool that I had taken a year off to explore something creative. Mm -hmm. Like, I think most people understand that need. And so it wasn't seen necessarily as like a red flag or something on resume. It was sort of like, oh, cool. She has like outside creative passions that she's really excited about. Like, that's great. Good for you. Um, and so hopefully if, if anyone is on the fence about whether or not to quit, just know, like, you know, first of all, everyone's quitting their jobs right now. It's like the great resignation or whatever. So you're not alone, but, um, I don't regret any of the choices I've made because they've led me to this like incredible opportunity to have a published book out in the world. Now, would you, that's so fascinating. Would you chalk up, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry, <clears throat> let me start again. Uh, would you chalk that up to this kind of shift in mentality that younger people are bringing to the workplace where when you went to Amazon and they were actually excited at the fact that you were doing something that was an experience and it was, uh, it, it was uh, you know, creative, do you think that that's, a, that's like a kind of shift in the workplace where people are thinking – experience is very important and it's in this nine to five drudgery that everybody has subjected themselves to for the longest time is no longer beneficial. So it's, it's going to be more open to people with different diverse experiences, as opposed to this person has been consistently working at this, this specific type of job from they graduated from high school or I mean, college to now. Do you think that there's totally. like a shift there? Yeah, I do. And I think, um, you know, it's funny because like when I was interviewing at Amazon, the number of people who I interviewed with who were like, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. That's so cool. Um, you know, I think everyone has these um, desires and passions and they want to pursue something. And it really does take um that kind of risk mentality to be able to actually do it. But I think the cool thing that I saw and experienced was like people were like excited and kind of like it made them motivated in their own pursuits. Like I had people who would reach out to me and I was a manager for a team. So a lot of people on my team then felt comfortable to tell me like, oh, you know what I really love to do? I actually, like there was a girl um, who did leave Amazon as well. And she and her sister were like super passionate about coffee. 
and they had always wanted to open up a coffee company. And so she felt comfortable telling me like, you know, I have this dream, I'm working towards it. I just want you to know that as my manager. Um, and we're going to be like doing that work. I'm going to get my work done here, but like, I feel like you can support me like having time to work on this other thing. So, you know, I think it benefits managers as well to be open to people having outside interests because, like, I can't imagine anything worse than hiring someone who's only excited about the job. Like, that's, I feel like that's a red flag. Like, mm-hmm. they're only excited to come into the office or something or log into their Slack. Like, that would yeah. be so weird. Um, <laughs> I work as, yeah. I used to ask, go. Oh. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, my, my J-O-B job is working as a corporate, like a tech recruiter. And I, and people are always nervous to say those things, but it's like, no, it's, it's so much better because that employee is also going to like come in, do the work and then go do something else. I think when people only have work and it's too stressful, it's too much. So I agree as a professional. Yeah. That yeah, you should have something else going on. Like that would never make me nervous in a hiring process. If somebody was like, oh, I'm working on a book or I'm working on my own company or something, or one of my direct reports has a, has a freelance PR company with her sister. And I'm like, great. You That's know, awesome. you don't have to worry about I it. I know. And I, I do think there's like a wonderful culture shift to your point, Clayton, about like people just are embracing the new workforce and what it means. Like the whole like work from home thing, the like, I'm going to take a few months off to just like explore the world. It seems like companies are kind of having to like uh, wrestle with this and understand that people have lives outside of their jobs. And I I, like, I'm so excited about it. It's great. Um, And I feel like other countries have always been better about this than America. Americans are just like constantly working. I think it's finally time that like it's reached a breaking point and people understand that you need mental health breaks, you're going to get burned out. Um, so it's a whole new world. And I feel like people who have books in the back of their brains, like rattling around, it's like a really good time to try and start working on that. Yeah. Um, to move over into more romance, you know, Clayton is a former virgin, I guess all of us are, uh, but most mm-hmm. recently, mm-hmm. um, who, what are the romances that if somebody comes up to you, is like, oh, I've been hearing about romance. I want to start reading romance other than obviously for better or worse. Um, what are other books that you would, you would kind of recommend to newbies? Well, for me, like my favorite book that I've reread a few times is Alexis Hall's boyfriend material. Have you all read that book? We haven't done it yet for the podcast, but I'm sure we will. Oh my gosh. It's it's my favorite book of all time. And um, Alexis is a really wonderful writer of queer romances and boyfriend material is a bit of a take on Bridget Jones. I'm sorry that I keep bringing that movie up, but it's like, it's, it's, it's a great one. I mean, we should do Bridget Jones for the podcast. If you want to come back for that, we'll do a little Patreon. Oh my gosh. Please. I've, <laughs> I've also seen that movie so many times. I think I can recite it. So, um, but boyfriend material is wonderful because it deals with, again, fake dating, um, cinnamon roll hero. I think only one bed is in there, like just a lot of tropes in there. And the writing is so funny and smart. Um, and then I really am a fan of anything that 
Sarah J. Moss does in the romance uh, sci-fi fantasy universe. So depending on what genre, I might I might direct them to like A Court of Thorns and Roses. Um, and then probably a, it's like a curveball one. I recently read my first mafia romance, which I would highly recommend to anyone, which was... Um, Daniel Laurie's, uh, I think it's called Sweetest Oblivion or Sweet Ob- Sweet Oblivion. Um, that has like an alpha hero. So if if this person was like, I'm really into kind of like men who are um, super assertive, to put it politely, um, I might direct them to a mafia romance because they're also really fun and kind of silly. Um, alpha hero is something that I, I feel like I cannot write, but I really love reading that trope. Um, and then I had, I didn't touch on historical romances, but you know, which historical romance I really loved. And I'm not sure if you guys have covered it on the pod. I don't remember, but the Rakus. Have you no, covered but we, that book? Scarlet Peckham. Yeah, we need to. It's yeah. so great. And I loved that book. And I felt like it was a nice introduction because it avoids the trope that I really don't like, which is the, the like virginity trope as a prize. Um, that trope like I just have a hard time reading and I I loved that the risk it was like a woman who is a female rake and so you avoid the virginity trope altogether <laughs> um but I feel like that's also a good intro to historical well going off of that so your book is enemies to lovers of course and you're a huge uh-huh. fan of the enemies to lovers trope what are some other yeah. tropes that you love and maybe one or two that like you said the virginity trope i think we're all not fans of that here yeah it's a bit antiquated but what are a few that you maybe aren't as into yeah so the tropes i love would probably be only one bed um Enemies to Lovers, Fake Dating, and I really do love also, this is like, I feel like recently have really grown on me, but the like best friend's brother trope, mm-hmm. or like best friend's little sister, I can't remember <laughs> what was the <laughs> phrasing on that, best friend's sibling, whatever. Yeah. Um, my second book deals with a best friend's brother, so I'm, I have fallen head over heels in, into that one. Um and then the, the tropes that I'm not super into uh, would definitely be the virginity thing. And then I don't know how to say this trope other than like the daddy trope, which is sort of like when the book is like heavily into like the heroine calling the guy daddy over and over again. And he's oh. like, you're my little baby <laughs> angel kitten. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think I've come um, across that like exactly yet. But that I no. read have that. Oof. Yeah, the daddy, Tessa Bailey, who I love, has a lot of books where it's like kind of that dynamic of like daddy and like you're my little girl. And I really don't like that. Um, no, that's gross. For obvious reasons, I think. No offense to anyone who's into daddies. Um, and probably, <laughs> yeah, go on. What What, what is it about the specifically the fake dating trope? Marriage of Convenience, I think, is also, like, within that mm-hmm. arena um, totally. that you love. And if you and obviously, we love a book recommendation if you have any. Definitely. So I um, I think with fake dating, it's interesting because, or you said fake dating, right? Yeah, or was fake it dating. Enemies to Lovers. 
Oh my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> all enemies to lovers all the time. Um, fake dating is so funny. Cause like, I've never met anyone who has fake dated and I've never fake dated. Um, but I think there's something really nice about like two characters who are just forced to be around each other all the time. Um, that kind of creates this tension where like they're slowly building their real relationship while being forced to kind of play at the fake one. So like, I love a good fake dating story where they're forced to kiss like way earlier than they normally would. Um, because then of course they like usually have the, like, they're like, Ooh, what was that little tingle that shot up my spine from kissing this man who I barely know? Um, and so I just think it kind of provides a lot of intimacy that you don't normally get to see super early on. Um, yeah. Do you feel like that's true for you too when you read those books? Yeah. I think yeah, the the fake dating, the marriage of convenience, and I guess forks proximity as well are all kind of cousins a little bit in uh, tropes. Yeah, it's the same thing of sort of like, I have to be around this person. I don't want to be around this person. And then when that flip happens of like, I do want to be around this person, but I shouldn't want to be around this person. That yeah, That's right. Like that turn, I think is so delicious. And that's the thing that is like so fun to, to read. And also what ends up happening in these books is each of them has that moment themselves, but then doesn't want to tell the other one about it, which is like, like yeah, great. Oh, too. that's the best moment. I know when they're kind of like, I, I feel fanny flutters for this person. And <laughs> when, when can I tell them? Um, I think a book that does that really well, I really liked Christina Lauren's The Unhoneymooners. Um, there's fake dating in that. And they're also enemies to lovers, which is always fun. I also really liked Sarah Desai's The Dating Plan, mm -hmm. which came out, I think, a little more recently, maybe last year. Um and that was like pure fake dating and the writing was really wonderful um, and kind of taps into that thing that you're talking about of like, they both have feelings, they're not expressing them, when will they tell each other? Um, but I think those are my recent favorites. I'm trying to think if there are any other ones, but yeah. Well, jumping off of that, kissing somebody before it's time, something that I mm -hmm. have come to really like recently is... I guess it would be kissing the wrong person in the dark, which is <laughs> when you, you think you're kissing, like the heroine thinks she's kissing the hero, uh, like her boyfriend, but it turns out to be the hero. And I, that's something oh. that we've seen in some books recently. And I love that because I love hidden places, I'm which it's kind of that, like it happens in like cellars or closets or places like that uh -huh. in the dark uh -huh. and then it's also that kind of like oh i like this but it's different and then you realize it's not the person you thought it was i like that oh, what a horrible thing to just kiss someone and really like it realize you get to date someone else um i don't know if i've read any books like that what are your recs for that um, so I'm so bad with remembering the titles, but Aaron, what was the one that I, know, I we, am too? <laughs> what is the one that we read like a couple months ago where it's like that was how that was the meet cute between the uh hero and the heroine was down in the cellar. They kiss down in each the other. cellar, 
Yeah. Like the modern one I was thinking of when you brought that up was the love hypothesis. And mm-hmm. that's by Allie Hazelwood. And I think the opening is her, her like kissing someone in the dark. Maybe I'm making that up, but I think she like kisses him and doesn't know who it is. We don't know who it is until the end of the book, but you obviously you kind of know, but. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking of where dreams begin by Lisa Claypass, which we haven't read for the podcast. And then that cruisy Jennifer Cruzy book we read, they meet in a closet, but they don't kiss. And then I was thinking Earl Gorilla Twins by Lorraine Heath. Oh, well, that's not the name of the song, but but that's a great, a Gorilla Twins is a great name for that book. though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't think of where they meet it. It was, it was it a, was it a contemporary or was it historical? It was a it was a historical. I'm I'm going through our our episodes now while while to try and well we think about it. Yeah, um, I do have to say I I told you before we started recording, but I've absolutely been devouring for better or worse, and I didn't get to finish it obviously before we spoke. But I was like, it's good because I don't want to spoil the ending anyway because this is a no spoiler <laughs> episode. Normally, all of our episodes That's are spoilers. Right. Um, and I, I do love the way that you flipped the tropes or, or flipped the expectation rather of Nina and being somebody Leo. Who, yeah. and Leo, Nina being, um, there's a member of my family whose name is Nina, but she pronounces it Nina. And so it's very hard for me to oh, not say Nina, even hard. though I know yeah. that's the care. I'm sure the character is Nina, um, how Nina is, is they're both obsessed with her work. So it's not that kind of like nineties rom-com trope of she's, she works so hard. She has no time for love. Like she's so open and she's so loving and has a lot of people in her life who really, really love her and is connected to her emotions, but also isn't able to express that on, you know, at work necessarily, or through this TV show, they kind of each picked a character early on and are really trapped in that Leo as well, who is like, so kind and loves rom-coms and like wants to fall in love. And is this like really sweet person. Um, I imagine writing romance coming up with those two characters and how they balance each other and why they can't be together is really hard. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to, to decide this for your characters and like in earlier iterations, was it like very different? Yeah, I think it was different. Um, because when I was writing enemies to lovers, like I definitely wanted them to start out hating each other. And I think, I think it's very clear that they genuinely hate each other up top um, and showing that arc of them, you know, kind of empathizing with each other, eventually falling in love and falling for each other. Um, And early on, I actually, I have a really hard time hurting my characters initially. (laughs) And I kind of need pushes from my, my editor and my agent to be like, no, they, they have to really be mean toward each other. So the beginning of the book was softer in terms of how they alienate each other originally. And then my agent and editor encouraged me to like make the digs harder and make sure that it was clear that like, you feel like there's no way these characters can come back from the damage they've done to each other uh, emotionally. And so that definitely got changed and built up and um, is different. And then, you know, I think in my revisions, like the thing I had to do was 
and and tried to make sense of was like those kind of tender moments between them where you're seeing a lot of the longing looks, you're seeing them kind of start to notice different things about each other and finally see each other as two humans versus like, you know, this person who's ruining my life kind of thing. Um, and so I'm, I'm a writer who gets better in rewrites, like my first drafts, like my, that editor a long time ago said is garbage. So uh, <laughs> it gets better, gets better with time. Um, but yeah, things definitely uh, shifted and changed. And it was important for me that throughout the book, Nina never really fully forgives Leo, our main character. Um, you know, and that was something that I wanted to keep because I think in a lot of romance books like this, like the heroine will forgive the hero fully or the hero will, will forgive the heroine fully. And I don't know if it's just like, the Italian part of me, but I don't really forgive anyone. <laughs> I always remember things. And so I was like, I need, I need Nina to like come to terms with how Leo treated her, but I don't want her to ever be like, Oh no, it was cool that you called yeah. me nasty Nina on TV. Like I didn't want that to ever happen. Um, so I, I made sure that, that she comes to terms with it, but he's also aware that like, he totally messed up and that will just be a thing that kind of he did and he'll never do again. Yeah. When he does call her that, that happened very early in the book, I was genuinely shocked. Like the, the casual cruelty of that mm -hmm. was brutal. So well done. Yes. For hurting and people. that was something that was, that was the thing that changed. So I think like, Nina was originally, I think her name was Cassie and maybe he calls her like classless Cassie or something was like my first iterate, like something much softer. And my editor was like, no, I really need like a punch to the gut. And so I was like, well, the only word that I feel like as a woman, if someone called me nasty, I would just have this like kind of visceral like reaction. Yeah. And so I ended up changing her name to Nina so that we could, we could do nasty Nina. And um, like his arc of winning, being able to win her over after that and to show the softness of him and the fact that like, you know, at no point did he ever really mean her harm. It was coming from a place of hurt. Like I, I think all of that's baked in there, but um, it was, a you know, it's always a challenge when you do something like that to a character. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that that felt harsh to you. Cause that, that, that is the enemies to lovers of it. It did. It was like a gut punch. Something else that I love about the book is I like when books have like a very specific sense of place. And this book definitely feels like a very LA story and sort of the way that they interact with where they live and they go to the Chateau Marmont, which is like my favorite place on earth. And um, yeah. how important was it to you that it be set in LA? Like how much of, so yeah, I live in LA. I've lived here for the last, I think it's like probably like 14 years or something like that. And so for me, I definitely wanted to tell an LA story because I think a lot of the books that I read are not set in LA. Um, there aren't that many romances set in LA. I feel like, uh, as of this year, there are a few coming out that are more LA based, but you know, for me, LA has been the city where I've dated the most, um, where I've experienced like the most heartbreak, um, where I've met really funny, interesting people. And so I love LA and I needed this to be also a love letter to LA's food scene, which is so amazing. 
Um, and I hope when you guys, I saw that you went to the Rip Bodice out here in LA, which is like an incredible romance bookstore. Mm-hmm. But I hope when you were here, you had really good food because I remember part of when I moved from New York to LA, I was really worried about food because I was like, where am I going to, I used to get like a bagel every morning on my way to work. And I was like, what about my bagels, everyone? Um, but I was so pleasantly surprised by the super diverse, um, deeply interesting food scene here. And so I wanted to show that um, as much as possible. So yeah, it was really important for me to show different types of food in LA, different places to get the food. And also this takes place um, during Halloween season in LA, which might seem a little funny for people thinking about LA, but I love Halloween in LA. It's like very campy here and they're really like funny, iconic um, activities you can do that I I show in the book too. So yeah, I loved it. Great. Well, thanks uh, for joining us. We're very excited for this book to drop. And do you have any sort of, uh, I know it's, we're kind of in this weird COVID-ish still time. Do you have any like (laughs) touring you're going to do, any signings, anything fun like that? Or are they still going to be virtual for now? Yeah, they're they're opening up a little bit more. So I have an event um, on July 26th at Chevalier's Books in Larchmont with author J.C. Lee. It's called cool. A Punny Night of Rom-Coms because she has a book called Booked on a Feeling coming out. And <laughs> for Butterworth, so that'll be launch night. I know, it's great. Um, <laughs> and then on July 30th, I'm going to be launching the book at the Ripped Bodice, which is truly just an amazing bookstore. But if you can't make any of those events, I know the Ripped Bodice is going to be doing um, signed books that they'll send to you if you order the book from them. So that's really fun. Um, and I would love, I would love anyone who reads this to just reach out and tell me your thoughts. I love talking to readers. So um, I don't know if I'll be doing more virtual events, but you know, we'll see what happens, but I'm, I'm so excited that I got to be on your podcast. I'm just a huge fan and I'm, I'm honored that you were willing to chat with me about my book and about tropes. This was so much fun. Oh, I'm so, yeah, Thank it's you. been so great having you on too. And so, yeah, speaking of your readers getting in touch with you. How can they get in touch with you? So I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Aaron LaRosa Lit. And then I'm on TikTok, of course, like all the other <laughs> authors right now. Um, and so I'm, I think I'm at Aaron LaRosa Writes on TikTok. Great. So, yeah, so everybody go, you can pre-order now uh, for Butter or Worse comes out July 26th. It's, it's really lovely. And, um, and I really am enjoying it a lot more than I normally, I am not normally a contemporary reader, but this is making me think like there's so much more in contemporary that I need to sort of explore because I'm having such a wonderful time with this. And like I said before that this is your first romance is I'm so excited to see everything that you're going to write because this is phenomenal. And I know that you will only kind of go from there. So I'm excited. I'm happy it's a two book deal and stay in this world a little longer. Me too. I know it's a fun universe. Thank you, Erin. Yeah. Um, All right, everybody. So we will see you next time. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.